my friends, and welcome to another episode of the Accidental Tomatoes podcast. I'm your host, Joe Webb, and this is a podcast for all of us who are looking for faith beyond the fences and the walls of organized religion and the institutional church. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode. This is episode number 21 of the podcast. And our guest for this episode is Dr. Tamika Robinson, who is an associate professor of writing studies and rhetoric at Hofstra University in New York City. Tamika has been interviewed by local and national and even international media for her insights on race relations and topics around inclusion and equity. And she joins us today to talk about the importance of understanding intersectionality and how to center the voices of oppressed and marginalized people in conversations about creating a more fair and equitable society. So please give a very warm Accidental Tomatoes welcome to my friend, Tamika Robinson. So that's what centering those voices really is about. It's about really listening with intention and with the 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 recognition that the next step is doing some work and is is to be uncomfortable and sitting in that discomfort and being okay with being uncomfortable in some of those conversations and not trying to shift the conversation to your own personal experience. So our guest today is my friend Tamika Robinson and um, Tamika and I met, I don't know, like 10 or 12 or 13 years ago. We yeah. were we were <laughs> teaching at Marietta College, and we were attending the same church and in the same Sunday school class, and having a lot of fun um, challenging <laughs> the people around us in a lot of different and interesting ways. But um, Tamika, tell us, just give us a little background, like um, the 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 short version of who you are and and what you're doing now, and how you got to where you are. Um, so first, thank you for having me. But as far as like background, um, as far as you know, what I do, I'm an associate professor in the Department of Writing Studies and Rhetoric. More specifically, my program is in rhetoric and public advocacy. I'm also the director of our speech and debate program at Hofstra University. Uh, we met, I believe it was 10 years ago, a little over 10 years ago in 2010 when I was working at Marietta College as an assistant professor of communication studies there. And, you know, life has just kind of brought me to New York and I am still doing similar things as far as the types of classes and stuff that I teach in intercultural and health communication. But, you know, being in New York has certainly opened a lot more opportunities to engage with national and international press and to kind of spread a lot more information about culture and even talking about some health issues because, you know, being in the epicenter of COVID also creates yeah. its own well, what was once the epicenter of COVID, it's now shifted away from here quite a bit. But it's created some interesting opportunities to talk about how all of these things interrelate in very interesting ways. Yeah, that's one of the things that's always fascinated me about the work you do, because you're pretty public in your social media work with with some of the things you're working on. And um, the ways that, that you um, deal with the, these intersectional issues like everything from race to culture to sociology to you know all of all of these things that that a lot of things we want to compartmentalize i think and you just have a real knack for showing where all of those things kind of stream together and, that, so, and so that's part of what i want us to talk about today but also just you know that you and i have the we know each other and we have the advantage of being able to see each other on a Zoom call, but, you know, our, our listeners cannot see us. And so you, you have a, a different kind of cultural background than I do, obviously. And, and I think that helps set the context for the conversation a little bit. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so I was raised in South Louisiana, and my family culturally is just a, a mixture of everything is the best way to explain it. Um, as far as um, ethnic background, I am Creole and Hispanic. And by Creole, specifically, what I mean in looking at Louisiana Creoles, which is very different from Caribbean Creoles, 
is that is the the intermixing between Spanish, French, Africans, and American Indians primarily, though there's certainly some Irish influence and British influence and stuff, because it really is looking at how slave owners and slaves interacted at some points and how that created an entire new group. So on both sides of my family, we can actually trace to the, the plantations and specifically the slave owner and the slaves that produced my line of influence, which is kind of weird and rare, especially from people um, of an African diaspora being able to trace it that closely. Mm, yeah. But Creoles have maintained a lot of that history within our families and even maintain a lot of that culture and language that has come from that mixing of, of both of those or all of those different groups. Yeah. And then, and your family has kind of a, a, an interesting faith background as well, religious background as well, right? Yeah. So when I was a child, my mom is Christian and my father, who is now deceased now at, at, at present, he was, or at the time, he had converted from Catholicism to Islam because he found a lot more peace within the faith of Islam when he was in the military and he was stationed in Germany. He started to read more about a lot of the Islamic practices and, and the ideology, and he found a lot more connection to that than his Catholic upbringing that he found with that. So he found a lot of peace in it. And my parents were very interesting in that. They encouraged me to figure out things for myself. And yes, they had very strong beliefs about what they believe, but there was freedom to kind of figure out and really kind of wrestle with what do these texts mean and why are they significant? And it wasn't just, you're going to church as a, a root practice. It was, what does faith mean to mm. you from very young age. Yeah, so you have to kind of appropriate when you're when you're raised in a, in a mixed faith tradition like that. I would imagine that it's less like what what folks like me would have experienced, where you basically inherit the faith tradition of your parents. You've got to at some point appropriate for yourself, you know what what kind of faith tradition you you want to choose to to be part of. I guess. Absolutely. I mean, and though I was raised um, almost primarily, not almost, I was raised primarily by my mom because my parents did divorce when I was younger. I still was able to, and my mom didn't shy away from the fact that, you know, this is what my dad believed. And, you know, there was still those conversations that were there. And even she may say that like, Hey, I didn't, I don't recall saying any of these things. Those are not real conversations, but it was, the best thing for me as far as, you know, watching my mom is that my mom modeled behavior of what Christianity looked like yeah. as opposed to just saying, here's the scriptures, you got to go to church, which we did go to church, but it was her, her actions and her examples that were more salient to me and are more memorable than any of the Sunday schools or any of the vacation Bible schools, which again, we did all of those. Oh, yeah. But it was certainly seeing a lot more of how she allowed Christ to live within her that influenced me in, in a lot of ways. So I do identify as Christian, but I certainly have respect for other religions. And I also study them because I'm interested to see why do people believe what they believe and how does that influence their behavior, which is part of what I bring into a lot of my studies and a lot of the research that I do is I know that our value systems a lot of times are based in religion. Mm. Even if we're not religious, there is still something that is there that is guiding some of our value systems. Yeah. Yeah. So that, I, I feel like that really kind of leads to sort of the, the meat of the conversation that I wanted to have today is you really come from almost the ideal background to talk about these issues of intersectionality and, and more specifically how, how we um, center the voices of marginalized people. Right. And so you, you were a guest at our new wineskins gathering here a few weeks ago, and we were talking about this and that, you know, admittedly is a, a white audience, right? I mean, it's, it's a community of, of basically white folks. Um, you know, within that, there is some diversity as far as what kind of Europeans we came from, but still, and what, and what kind of faith backgrounds we have. But I think it's an important conversation for us to have 
maybe even especially in those spaces where we are so accustomed by our culture to just kind of having the spotlight, right? <laughs> or, or we're the ones that hold the microphone. Um, so can you talk a little bit about, first of all, like what do we mean by those terms, intersectionality, and then, and then also like centering the voices of marginalized or oppressed people? Yes. So intersectionality really looks at those perceptions. So it's looking at how there's different identity markers. So there's gender, there's race, there's ethnicity, there's language, there's um, ability level, there is geographic location, there's all these different things which make up who we are. Intersectionality looks at how at times these different identities connect together and create these intersections that may make things either better or worse depending on who that are or how those things interact as far as um, policy or how it interacts as far as culturally within the dominant versus subordinate um, ways of thinking about it. So a, a simple way to kind of really think about it is looking at, you know, independently looking at the experiences of a woman. There's lots of things you can look at as far as how that plays out within a system of patriarchy, right? But when you also add in race or ethnicity, it's going to be a very different conversation when you look at a woman who is a person of color. And then if you add in, you know, a religious area that is also marginalized, like Islam in our country, to where you have a woman of color who is Islamic, you know, and, and it's a woman, of course, that creates other barriers that both constrain and enable behavior because now we're not just talking about patriarchy. Now we're also talking about religious dominance. We're also talking about um, white supremacy. Right. There's all these things that are creating more barriers for that person that is independent if we're looking at just, um, just femininity. Right. Right. So what, so, so we have all of these contexts, right. That, that sort of, come together in various people and places and times and situations. And, um, and so what, what we're, what we're trying to talk about, I think, is how do we not only identify the, those contexts, but then give, give folks who are not from the dominant culture, so to speak, more of a voice in things like policy making or and even maybe further than that just in the creation of culture right mm -hmm. i think that it starts with recognizing that when people say the words like intersectionality or centering marginalized voices that this is not an attack on any person and it's it's taking out the defensiveness to where our defensiveness defensiveness is a word taking out that and recognizing that it's not about you it's about hearing their experiences and really hearing it to understand, listening to understand, not just to defend or to say that these things don't exist or that these are not your experiences. So there's often a temptation when someone talks about issues like white supremacy of people saying, well, I'm not a racist, so I don't have to be a part of this conversation. And no one's saying that you are a racist, but it's not enough to just not be racist you have to also actively be anti-racist right. and working towards changing some of those systems and recognizing that you benefit from some of those systems, whether you like it or not, to where whether you are outside, you know, lynching someone yourself, that's not a part of the conversation, which you, if you are, that's a horrible thing. Please to stop do. doing that. Yes. <laughs> yeah, please stop that. But it's recognizing that white supremacy is more than just people who are part of the Ku Klux Klan. It is looking at how do policies, like looking at, you know, something like wages, for instance. That's something that seems pretty innocuous. But when you look at the wage gap, people often talk about the wage gap between men and women as being that 79 cents to the dollar or whatever. But if you go deeper into looking at those numbers, for Asian women, it's a very different number. For Black women, it's a different number. When you get down to Hispanic women, you're really looking at a 
50 cents to the dollar difference between a Hispanic woman and a, a white male. So it's recognizing that you can have all of those conversations simultaneously, but you have to listen to them and recognize how do you situate yourself and how do you benefit in some ways from these systems of oppression like marginalization, like uh, not marginalization, but like misogyny and, you know, able-bodiedness. Because a lot of people forget that ability is also a huge privilege, especially if we're talking about, you know, some of those hidden disabilities. People forget that those are also privileges that we, we have and there are things that, that work against that. So looking at those things and recognizing where we sit, it's a part of that. And then starting to have those tough conversations about how do I now, now that I recognize that I'm contributing to it and benefit from it, how do I change, actively work to change situations for people who are around me to make it more equitable and fair? And if you're not willing to have those conversations about what you need to do, questioning why is that a, a barrier for you? Mm -hmm. Why don't you want to have those conversations? So that's what centering those voices really is about. It's about really listening with intention and with the, the, the recognition that the next step is doing some work. Yeah. And it's, it's to be uncomfortable and sitting in that discomfort and it being okay with being uncomfortable in some of those conversations and not trying to shift the conversation to your own personal experiences. Right. Yeah. And that's, you know, it's, I, I understand the challenge for that in, for people in a way. And, and I, you know, I, one of the metaphors that I see people using a lot is, is the whole um, inviting people to the table metaphor. And, and that's one of those things that when you think about it at the next level, you realize that even for me as a white person to say, I'm inviting you as a person of color to the table, I'm still implying that it's my freaking table, right? You know, and, and so that maybe just to kind of extend the metaphor to the action step is to say, how can we together build a table together that includes all of our experiences and all of our voices? Absolutely. And, and I think that the, the example use is perfect for that because it is, is that that power of naming, the power of invitation, that's still a power differential because just like you can invite, you can disinvite. To where if we are building it together and recognizing that, you know, a lot of conversations, especially right now, are looking at our founding fathers and those types of things. When they wrote these words, like all men are created equal, it wasn't about including people of color. It wasn't even including women, honestly, at that, that time. To where we can't just keep glorifying these systems and these places and stuff as saying like, well, let's just keep fixing it. And inviting more people to the table, as you said, but rather dismantling is just that is dismantling it is creating something better with the knowledge of how can we extend these conversations with the knowledge that we have now and how can we create something that's better. It's not saying let's take away every single thing. It's saying let's take the things that are good and use those collectively to build something even better together. And that's what a lot of activists are, are actually asking for, but people get scared when they hear words like dismantling, defunding, mm. systemic. Those things are terrifying to people because as I said earlier, they recognize that they benefit and there's a real fear behind changing because it's like, if we actually start to make change and really look at systems as what they are and making these systems more equitable, then you are going to have to recognize that you, you don't get everything. Yeah. You don't get to decide who's there and that's okay. But there's fear behind that recognition that really, really terrifies a lot of people. Yeah. And I was, I was kind of going to ask you about like, what do you perceive people's resistance to be? But I think you've named it really well, that fear thing. So what is it, if you kind of dig deep into that, what is it that, that people really are afraid of? Like beyond, I, I don't know, maybe beyond's not the right word because, you know, there is that like, 
losing control, just fear of change in general. Those things are certainly like, you know, kind of at the root of fear, but, but it feels like there's something like systemically deeper than that, that, that causes that fear response in people. Yeah, I think that it's, it's, and I think you're right, there is the fear of change, there is those baseline fears that are the same across, but there's a more insidious fear, I believe, of if things radically change, what if these people who are now marginalized or oppressed for so long now rise up and then oppress me? Yeah. And that's really where some people are, are terrified. They're like, well, what if what if they treat me like I treated their, not I treated, but like our ancestors treated their ancestors and stuff? That That's horrible. And activists are not really asking to do that. I mean, I'm sure there are some crazy people who would support that. But most people who are engaged in this fight and engaged in this conversation are not looking to oppress anybody. It's really looking at liberation for everybody. But there is a fear of oppression being the response if people who have been oppressed gain a power within systems. Yeah. Do you think there's probably a a seed of guilt in the middle of that too? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, and you, you talked about my social media a few minutes ago, like I posted a meme a few years ago and it was insanity, the response. And it was just like, you know, dear white people, no one is asking you to apologize for slavery, but rather recognizing that you have benefited from the effects of it. So like really looking at generational wealth, how it was illegal for people of color to amass any wealth at any point, but also like the economy was built on the backs of enslaved um, black and brown people, Mm -hmm. honestly. And even looking at how even in some systems now, we are still, if we're looking at like essential workers and stuff, some of the work that I'm doing right now with some colleagues, is that recognizing that Economically, yes, there absolutely is a, a argument for like slavery because like as far as how your your costs versus your output, like your benefits from it that come out of it, it absolutely makes sense. And then you have like Senator Cotton recently, like a few days ago, um, you know, making Listeners comments. could not hear my eye roll right there when you mentioned it. <laughs> You know, making these statements about slavery and stuff being necessary evils and stuff is that that still impacts a history. And even as we talk about it to where his comments are about, you know, indoctrination in school, as we talk about these things, is that if we can't even talk about the legacy of slavery, we can't even talk about how that impacted things. And not just looking at slavery, looking at more contemporary policies like redlining and looking at residential segregation, which also impacts education, which impacts health, like it impacts so many different things that if we can't have those honest conversations, we're not trying to change these things. We are really just trying to bury our heads in the sands, like slavery's over, everybody's equal now, and everything can possibly, everyone can achieve the American dream, which we know has always been a lie, that there have been barriers put in place for people, and not just people of color, but looking at trans people, gay people. There are all these barriers that have been put in place to stop their progression, that we have to start with having the conversation about the barriers to then start talking about how can we change those barriers. Yeah. I saw um, Reverend Barber uh, speak at Wild Goose Festival last year, and he was um, one of the things that he was talking about, you know, he's, he's leads this thing called the Poor People's Campaign, which is sort of a, a rebirth of Dr. King's movement. And, you know, he was talking about how racist voter suppression, right, leads to the election of, you know, mostly white men, older white men mm-hmm. who then enact policies that even more greatly disadvantage poor white people. Or as greatly, anyhow, maybe not more greatly, but but poor white people are as disadvantaged as poor people of of other you know racial backgrounds, right? And and how but how our racist system, right? This this white supremacist system that we live in actually blinds the people who are who are being maybe as much or the most harmed by these systems. They're the ones that continue to support the system, right? So so that's this stuff is so deeply embedded. You know, and it's been like, it's been 400 years. It's no wonder it's so deeply embedded. 
And so one of the things that I kind of was thinking as you were talking about that was this experience that I had when I was, um, when I was in seminary and I interned at a, a black church or a historically black church, it was, um, much more diverse by the time I got there, but the leadership was still from, you know, the original, um, African-American families, um, were still most of the leadership there. And I learned so much from them, you know, just from being in their presence. But, you know, when you were talking about people's fear that if, if I release my control, then I will become oppressed. And I, I remember like that, the women in that church, like I've never seen love and hospitality anywhere like that. And, and they welcomed me and my family in, and I saw them welcome people from all over the neighborhood of all kinds of background in as if they were their own families. And I remember at one point I finally kind of got to know them well enough that I felt, you know, safe enough asking like, how, how can you, you know, you, your, your families and, and, and your race has been so oppressed and marginalized for so long. And yet you treat all of us as if we were your fam family. How, you know, how can you do that? And they like, without blinking an eye, this one woman who was one of the kind of matriarchs of the church said, because we don't want anyone else to ever experience what we've experienced. And that just like that sunk into my soul, you know? Um, and, and was probably one of the, that whole experience really was probably seminal in my confronting my own privilege. Right. But, but that statement I think probably changed, you know, pivoted my work, you know, anyhow. Um, so yeah, can you, I, I don't know, just kind of unpack if you can a little bit, you know, why that fear is so unfounded, right. Of, of being oppressed as a result of having been part of an oppressive majority. I think that the, I, I can't really honestly describe it better than the way that these women described it to you, because it really isn't about, like I said, for most activists. And I, again, I'm not saying that every single person, I don't speak for every single activist that is out there and doing this or even scholar who is doing this work. But for the most part, it's recognition of, of, of change and how to build a better world and how we all should be a part of building that better world. That is so important because it's not about, you know, making someone else feel what you have experienced. It's not about saying it, that I want a white heterosexual able-bodied man to experience what it's like to have a police officer follow you home at 3 a.m. Like, I don't want those things for you, but I also don't want to have to keep thinking about my own safety all the time or even the safety of that, you know, future generations, you know, and of people in my family and other people to where it's like, we want us all to be able to feel comfortable with our interactions with each other and to feel comfortable in spaces because we know what it feels like. We know how it feels to be in those situations. And we can't know every single experience but that's why having those conversations, even if you're a part of a mar marginalized group, is looking at some of those other intersections. So having those conversations. So for me, it's having a lot of conversations with non-able body individuals, having conversations and listening honestly to their experiences with trans individuals, with um, LGBT, like, you know, really understanding what does that fight look like and why is it also my fight? Mm. Because liberation for any of us is liberation for all of yes, us if we're yes. really working together. And, and I think that, that you hit it that as far as it's intentionally, as far as it was so ingrained, as far as why poor whites also don't see their place in it, because anti-black rhetoric has been so deeply entrenched to where even if you are poor, you are still better than that black person. Yeah, yeah. You are still better than because of your whiteness. And dealing with that and unpacking what that means and why are you voting against your own interests because of this ideology of superiority is dismantling white supremacy and is also recognizing that if we're all working together oh wait your living conditions can also improve to so where it really is looking at economics and stuff too and realizing how those things interconnect and how all of these systems are to 
to really benefit only one small group or fraction of people when we all could be, you know, doing a lot better. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, you know, a, a lot of the folks who listen to this podcast would probably describe themselves as spiritual exiles or folks who are, you know, kind of in some form of deconstruction process. I talk about that a lot, but, but to me, what you're talking about really kind of circles back to like, there's this kind of Jesus-y way of being in the world, right? That does attempt to create a better world for everyone, right? That it doesn't have to be my benefit at the expense of someone, you know, I, I center so much of my own kind of faith journey in the Sermon on the Mount. And to me, Dallas Willard wrote a, a brilliant book uh, about the Sermon on the Mount um, that I'm going to forget the name of as soon as I try to say it out loud, The Divine Conspiracy. And one of the things that he kind of unpacks in, in the way he does his exegesis, I guess, of, of the Sermon on the Mount is that what Jesus is really saying in all of that is that anything we do to advance our own interest that is at the expense of someone else is inherently against the way of God, the way that reality was designed to be, right? Mm-hmm. And and so what we should, if, if we are people who identify as, as Christians or followers of the way of Jesus or whatever, we should be the ones who are most actively trying to dismantle those systems where some benefit at the expense of others. Mm-hmm. And we should be a part of those conversations, but we know that our churches, especially, and, and I think that you you are exactly right, it's like spiritual exiles in some ways. So we're like, we follow the teachings of, we are very spiritually grounded people, but religion in a lot of ways, and even the way that organized religion does this, it, it creates those things to where we have entire ministries that are prosperity teachings and stuff. And that's not really like Jesus didn't come to make us all rich. I mean, rich in spirit. Yes. But financially rich. No. Um, Like that was never a part of the conversation, but we have perverted a lot of this language and a lot of these teachings, even looking at the text. And it's not just in Christianity that does this. A lot of religions do this. And they're missing the point of this being good people and stewardship of what we have been given on this earth, but also how we are supposed to benefit others and that we're a part of this greater community, not just ourselves, is such a a slap in the face to a lot of people because that's not how they've been taught. They've been taught that it's about you and it's that, and really looking at American culture in general, not just looking at religion. It is you and your immediate family. It's not really about the community. It's about your life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. We don't really care about other people's, right? To where that takes some fundamental paradigm shifts as far as recognizing that this is completely wrong as far as how we're thinking through this. And that that really is uncomfortable because then it's like, well, what do I replace it with? Yeah. How do I reconcile that with what I believe or, or what I've been taught? And it's a it's a constant process. You never get there. It's a journey um, of constantly revisiting and constantly seeking. Um, to where I wake up every morning and I read my Bible as far as, you know, what am I grappling with today? And then thinking through throughout the day, okay, am I doing what what Christ would want me to do through all of my work? Or am I just centering myself? Am I just trying to advance myself and my family or my community? How can I shift that conversation to doing Christ's work? Yeah. And, you know, and so we've talked about um, in other contexts, like the hyper individualism of American culture, like we, and it's, if, if the pandemic has not shown us anything, it's shown us that, right. How, how horribly individualistic we've become as a culture. And I think, I don't know, I'm just, I'm kind of riffing off what you were saying. I think there's a lot in some of the evangelical traditions that have exacerbated that with, a message of of salvation in air quotes that is all about what I have to do to get my individual soul to heaven after I die, right? Which 
the, the more I study the Bible, the less that I see that any of that is really even in there. Not, you know, not to say, you know, I don't know what happens when, when we die. Right. Um, I, I believe that there's something else beyond this, but I think that whole weird individualistic heaven and hell paradigm is much more an invention of modernist religion, post enlightenment religion, even than it, it has anything to do with the way of Jesus. Yeah, it's it's really a conversation of it's not about the community of yeah. stuff. It, it's not about the how do I get everybody to this great place that we believe. If if you believe that, I mean, there are some people who don't believe right. that there is inner hell, right? But it's like how do we do good should be at the root of things, but it's not. As you said, it really is. How do I get myself and how do I get maybe my family and friends to that next level? But we are the chosen people that are going to be fine and we don't really care about everybody else. Or in our caring, we also sometimes do more harm when we start to do missionary work. Oh, yeah. We're trying to convert the heathens into our way of thinking is that, okay, I'm now doing that community work that you're talking about. I'm trying to save them too. But again, it is elevating your voice and saying, I'm right. I'm the chosen one. God has given me this, this vision of what I need to do for this other group. When a lot of times I question whether or not they've really had those conversations with God or whether it's just really them and how they can center their voices and their families. Because if you really look at some of these evangelical churches and stuff, especially our mega churches, these pastors and stuff are millionaires and yeah. it's like okay but what are you doing with all of these resources and stuff to benefit those communities and and some are actually doing some good work don't get me wrong but it's really this question of are you centering yourself as a, being a part of it are you on the front page of all of these this good work or are you doing some of this stuff behind the scenes or is it just to gain more followers and more money eventually yeah yeah, and we and we could probably do a whole other episode on the colonialist attitudes of the the white church mission project, you know. Um, you know, let's go make everybody more like us, you know, and that's kind of what is at the at the heart of a lot of that. Um and some of the damaging effects oh, that's yeah. done a lot of countries as far, especially with our framing of like these third world savages and stuff. That's all. Yeah. Like you said, it's a different conversation. Yeah, yeah. I mean it's it's a conversation worth having and it's and it's deep thinking, but yeah, it's, um, we, we've created some monsters, you know, um, in, in the church and, um, and I'm glad, you know, I'm glad we're at a point where maybe we are starting to dismantle, to take some of that apart. And, but it's, it's slow, it's slow work and it's tedious work. Um, and I, you know, one of the things, again, when I was sort of learning to unpack my own privilege, one of the things that, one of my attitudes was like this stuff takes time, right? It, it doesn't happen. And we know that that's true, right? It, it does take time and things don't happen overnight, but I have to recognize that when I make that statement, I am making it from a position of privilege. I'm not the one who's being harmed. I'm not the one who needs change to happen sooner rather than later. Right. And so, so how can we, how can we maybe, you know, inspire people to, to look past you know, their own benefit, their own privilege, even people like, like I was just describing myself who can see the reality that it does take time, but to recognize that's a privileged statement and you need to move from that to working for the betterment of some other folks. Right. So there, there are a few ways, I think. So the first is recognizing that saying that it takes time and using that as a stop measure are two different things. Right. Right. To where you can recognize that it takes time, but still put in the time to start to do some of those things as far as sowing those seeds. Yes. So even if you're saying it, yes, it's a privileged statement. But if your actions are showing that, no, but I'm still willing to do some of this work, I'm still willing to be a part of doing the work. That's a different conversation and just like it takes time and you should just wait. It's going to happen eventually. I mean, that's one of right. the and a lot of people like to talk about um, Martin Luther King Jr. and his teachings and stuff like that. And what a lot of people miss is that some of his most well, I guess not the most famous of 
is you're looking at his disappointment with the white liberals oh, yeah. of wait, wait the time. It's going to happen. That's not how action has ever happened. It has been disruption. It has been actually pushing for that change. Because if you just wait and nobody's working, nothing gets done. Yeah. And that seems so simplistic. But people really do get caught up on the, you want things to change overnight. No, that's not really what people are asking for, but they want actions behind words. Saying that you have a commitment, and this is not just religious organizations, this is all organizations, including academic ones. Saying that you have a commitment to diversity and inclusion is great. What are you doing to actually do that work? Right. And when someone questions, what are you doing? Don't get defensive and say, but, 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 but we have a commitment to it. It's saying, okay, if the people that we are allegedly trying to become more inclusive with are saying it's not more inclusive, maybe we should take a step back and ask why is it and why are we so resistant to making some of those necessary changes, even if they're, um, because sometimes it's like very small changes. But why are we so resistant to making those changes is a part of that sitting in that discomfort and moving beyond it. Because it's like, okay, if I am resistant to it because, for example, I benefit from it or it's not important to me. That's the bigger one. Yeah. Is that it's not important to me. Recognizing that that's a problem and actively changing. Why isn't this important to you? Do I need to do some more reading? Do I need to do a little bit more soul searching on why this is not important to me? Or even saying, okay, but even if it's not important to me, who cares? It's important to someone else. Yeah. I, 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 I was thinking of the example of like, I'm not racist. I have a black friend, you know, when you were talking about inclusiveness programs and it's, it's like we fall back on that. Yeah. So often. Yeah. I mean, institutions, I, I can, because I'm in academia. That's one of the things that we're often like, you know, every, every university has on their website in the U.S., has on their website something about their commitment to diversity and inclusion. And you'll see some photos that include um, people of color, because that's really what they're looking at as far as like, can we count them? Are there more bodies here? But when you start to look at some of those numbers and stuff, and even some of the numbers, when you start to look at it beyond like the student body, when you start to look at like faculty and administration and upper levels, you start to see even fewer and fewer mm. people. And to say that you have a commitment, but the data shows that you don't, you haven't actually hired anybody. Have you actually, you know, appointed anybody or, you know, what have you done? That's not a commitment. You're lying to yourself. You are convincing yourself that you're doing work that you're really not. And when, you know, people say, okay, but we want these things and they tell you these are things that we want and you say, no, 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 we can't do that. That's too radical. Why? Why is that radical? Yeah. yeah that makes me, I, I was going to go a completely different direction, but you just made me think of something. And I'm wondering if, if, if what you're describing is part of why, you know, 50 plus years after Dr. King's movement, we're still grappling with these issues because for 50 plus years, white society has been very content with that kind of virtue signaling without actually doing the work, right? Yeah, I mean, they absolutely are. I mean, we're seeing it to where, you know, we're renaming things, we're taking down statues. Again, not saying these things aren't necessary steps, but it's like, okay, but we're doing this. Be content. Work is happening. We've taken Aunt Jemima off of the, the pancake box. Isn't that enough? Why are people still doing stuff? It's like, no, no, no. It's recognizing that these are looking at much bigger um, um, systems and recognizing that now is the time to change these systems and not just settling for, as you said, those virtual signaling or our, our little Band-Aid fixes yeah. to gaping holes. Yeah. And that, that actually kind of circles me back to where I was kind of going originally was, you know, we are, we are talking about systemic issues. And I think that's one of the, because it's so big and so complicated and because we've largely lost our ability for like nuanced thought, critical thought, you know, we, we have a hard time grappling with systemic issues. And I think 
But that's what we're talking about. It's not just these little band-aids. It is actual reconstruction of systems to make them more fair for people. And so that that kind of brings me to the question I wanted to ask, like, what is what is the role of protest? Why is protest so necessary? And I think that brings us back to the whole idea of, of centering the voices of the marginalized too, right? Yes. Yeah, so even Dr. King, um, and I'm going to go back to him a little bit because people like to use him as the example of nonviolence. Even he said that, you know, riots are the language of the unheard. Yeah where it's about that disruption to bring awareness and attention to where people have been trying to have these conversations peacefully for a very long time and they've been ignored. And often when people say like, but you need to work through the proper systems and through the proper protocols and the right things is they're quite comfortable in those because they know that those systems will stop them Mm -hmm. or that no work will get done to where, and people don't often recognize that. They honestly think that that's the right answer to where it's like, but if you would just ask nicer, people would be nicer to you. And it's like, that's not how yeah. any of this works. If that, if that worked, it would have worked already, right? Right, like we, we could ask it, like you can't just say like, please sir, give me some rights. And people are like, yes, those rights are for you. Like that's not how anything has happened in this country. Even looking at like the founding of our country, going back to the American Revolution and stuff, we didn't kindly ask to be free from England. There was an entire war, right? So it's recognizing that protesting and civil disobedience. I mean, we're just looking at, you know, the death of John Lewis and really looking at getting into that good trouble is necessary. And it's easy when we are sitting in our own privilege to to say or to paint other the like means in which people rhetorical choices they use or how they interact as far as like they're looting they're rioting and stuff like that it's easy to just like sit there and say like demonize those things without recognizing why are these things occurring and what can I understand from it? Yeah. That's not the same thing as saying that you endorse looting and rioting, but it's starting to ask what happened before it. So the conversation we had in the new wineskins um, talk that we had a few weeks ago was really looking at like the target. So everybody was talking about the target that was burned down in Minneapolis. What people often miss was that some of the protesters and stuff that were tear gas were trying to get into the target to buy supplies to deal with being tear gas and the target closed the doors, refused to sell things and supplies to the, the, the protesters, the peaceful protesters that were there. And that's where it became violent to where there's very little conversation about what precipitated the action. Mm. Again, not saying everybody that is doing this is doing this, because some people are using it as a, a way to, to capitalize on the moment. That right. a, a lot of these people are not a part of the protest. They are using it to be, um, to capitalize yeah, on it. Yeah. So it's really looking deeper at it and is seeking to understand before commenting. And we just don't have, often don't have that ability or want to do that extra step of understanding because it's easy to say, that's not how I would do it. That's not the right way to do it. So that shouldn't be acceptable. Yeah. But there's a certain amount of privilege in being able to say that and who appointed you as the arbiter of the right way to right. say things or the the correct ways to do certain things. Yeah. And, and it's a tough conversation. It's one that I, I've been having with lots of, of friends even recently when they they say that, well, these people aren't doing things right. I mean, there's a whole fight right now in my hometown looking at my Catholic high school about, you know, alums are saying like, hey, we need to have more diverse curriculum. We should actually like interrogate some of these policies and stuff. And lots of people, there's a counter petition that's happening about, well, they didn't go through the right methods and the language choices they're using is too bombastic. They are not the right person to talk about it. Who told you that you get to make these decisions? And people don't get that that's a privileged statement and that them saying that, you're not even seeking to understand what they're asking for. Why is it bad to ask for a more diverse curriculum for students? 
why is it that this is a bad conversation to have? Because you benefit from it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, I get, like, I, I think I said this earlier, like I get why it's hard for people, but I, I have trouble getting why they don't see the necessity, right. Of having the conversation, even if it is hard. And maybe we're just, maybe we're just too spoiled as American culture and especially in white American culture to, to think that we can be inconvenienced. I saw, I think it was this morning, somebody posted uh, something about, you know, like protests that disrupt traffic, you know, that block a road mm-hmm. or block a bridge. <clears throat> and, and the point of, I just thought it, it really articulated well that the, the point of that particular type of protest is not to punish you. You know, I think a lot of people look at that and they're like, you know, you oh, you're inconveniencing me. You're inconveniencing me so much. And you're just doing this to get back at me for these things mm-hmm. you're angry about. And no, the point of it is that you experience for a minute what it's like to be inconvenienced like we are every single day of our lives, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. and if we can just start to crack that nut a little bit and start to get through to people and get them to understand some of that, then maybe we can make a move, you know, towards some better things. And I guess that kind of leads me to my next question for you is, you know, it, it's easy to see the doom and gloom and the hopelessness um, because it's just, it is so hard and, and there's, there's so much tension right now, but it's, it's not all doom and like, there's some good is beginning to happen. So where, where are you seeing successes, positive results, um, hope, you know, where are you seeing that in, in the work you're doing? Um, well, I, I see a lot of hope always when I talk to my students too, where that gives me some like, okay, people are getting it. Not all of them, of course. You got Gen but Z students, that- man. They're, they're the best. <laughs> Like they are good, but there are definitely some that like, okay, I I now like I'm questioning these things. And for me, as far as where the energy comes from and recognizing that there's so many things that are happening, we're having more conversations where people who at the beginning, I'm going to use the Black Lives Matter movement for an example. You know, the people who in 2013, 2014 were like, no, absolutely not. Like it has to be all lives matter. There's still some of those people. But there's more people who are starting to get it. Yeah. You're starting to see more people who are starting to get the the the, the extra that Black Lives Matter too. And it's really starting to look at some of these things and seeing the coalition and allies that are showing up and putting their bodies on the line, looking in Portland at the, the wall of moms. Yeah. And that's an interesting one, which we can, I, I'll come back to in a second, but looking at like the wall of moms that are there and how that's starting to shift the conversation to where white women weren't always willing to put their bodies on the line in this way. And it's starting to spark more conversations of this is a everybody's fight. This is for everybody. And the reason why I said I was going to circle back to the wall of moms is that moms have always been there. Mm. Black moms, brown moms have always been there. They don't get elevated to the media standards. Oh, of, girl, preach that. i tell you what. <laughs> of their being there and leading these movements from the beginning. It is not until white women show up that it now starts to be like, oh, my God, this is amazing. Look at how they're willing to put their bodies on the line for this, that it's a part of that elevation of white supremacy Mm -hmm. and stuff. Not to say this work is not good, but it's starting to say like, okay, well, why can't we have the conversation about the black moms who've been out there since 2013? Um, and 2014, 2014 is really when Black Lives Matter took off as a movement when the Michael Brown um, acquittal came down, um, specifically with the officer being acquitted. And there were moms, there were 600 people out there. Most of them were women mm. that were out there that were taken to the streets that were being tear gas. And even looking at the civil rights going deeper into civil rights movements and stuff, it was the women that were doing a lot of things to where they don't get elevated. Black and brown women don't get elevated into these conversations as being the workers that are really leading these movements in the same way. I'm starting to see some of that change, which gives me hope but there's still some work yeah. that needs to be done. Yeah. But yeah, but you're right though. Um, I mean, I even going back to the, the women's suffrage movement, 
you know, a, a lot of, we, we, our history books don't teach us mm-hmm. that the seeds of those movements were largely planted by black women, you know, mm-hmm. and, and when black women, you know, tried to push back and say like, okay, hold on, we need to talk about black women too. It was like, no, 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 wait your turn. We need to focus on all women and that suppressed black women and brown women even more in ways that are so insidious, but they seem hopeful in the thing. It's like, you know, this, this stuff will trickle down to you too because you're a woman. But that's where the intersection comes in. It's that recognition that your experiences are not the exact same experiences. And yes, you know, the, the tides lift all boats, but there needs to be, let's all work together to making sure all of us are in the right position of those boats where some of them are not sinking. Yeah, yeah. Um, I heard you say a couple of times in our conversation, and actually I kind of had it listed in my question, because I've heard you talk before about how you're able to use your own privilege to help further these conversations. And I know for some folks, and especially for for white men probably more than anyone, to hear a, a woman of color speak of her own privilege might sound a little contradictory. I mean, I, you and I, I think, know each other well enough that I can, I can easily get where you're coming from. But, mm-hmm. but you can you know, talk a little bit about even how your privilege as a woman, as a person of color, you still have the ability to further this conversation because, because of – so privilege isn't always a bad thing. It's more yeah. how we use our privilege is probably – like everything, like social media is not bad. How we use it can be horrible, right? So. Mm-hmm. I think that like not always bad. Privilege is actually a, a neutral thing. It, yeah, it's yeah. The way that I really start the conversation is recognizing what we do have and everything else and how we use that privilege is where it becomes whether or not it is a good thing or a bad thing. But yes, that is one of the things, especially with my students and in lectures and stuff that I give two different groups is that I really start from a place of, hey, yeah, you might look at me when I stand up here. I'm a woman. I'm also short. Uh, I'm a person of color. I wasn't going to bring that up to me. (laughs) (laughs) This is also why we're wearing high heels. (laughs) But (laughs) there's all of these things to where you might say like, okay, but, you know, where's where are you privileged? I'm educationally privileged. I'm economically privileged. I'm able-bodied. I am heterosexual, you know, all of these things, I'm cisgendered, there's all of these things that I do occupy these spaces of privilege and dominance, and saying like, okay, but what do I do with those things? How do I use that to help to have these conversations? Because there's places that I will be in, and spaces that I'll be invited to, that someone who is queer, transgender, non-able body, um, a non-U.S. citizen, you know, all of these things that they won't be invited to those spaces. How can I now talk about their liberation too, while also simultaneously talking about my experiences and how we need to liberate me too, right? So it's like, how can I use the spaces, the foothold that I have into these audiences to have these discussions, including our conversation right now. It's a privilege for us to have this conversation. And I recognize it as such. How can I now talk about and elevate other people to where it's like, don't just talk to me about these things, talk to other people about these things and how those systems work through it. I can't speak to their experiences always. I was having a conversation with a reporter recently who was doing a story about Asian Americans um, for Black Lives. I'm not a part of that community. I don't think that I'm the right person to have this conversation. I could talk about why we need everybody together, but I let's talk about someone else who is in that community that is a better representation of this information to to discuss it. So it's like, yeah, you already have me on speed dial. That's why you call me. Now let's talk about somebody that you may not know who's doing this work, who's doing a good thing. So it's using that privilege to elevate someone else mm. to speak on those issues. Yeah. Oh, this is such good stuff. <laughs> Unfortunately, we're, we're kind of, I want to honor your time. I know you're very busy and um, I, I really appreciate you joining us for this conversation and, and, um, being on the podcast, what, what kinds of things are you working on now? And is, is there a place 
out there on the internet where people can find your work uh, other than creeping on your Facebook page like I do? <laughs> Um, so I actually do my social media pretty private because there's a lot of crazy people yeah, out there. Yeah. But as far as, you know, things that I'm working on right now, I am doing a lot of writing. Um, I mentioned a little bit earlier that one of the new projects that I'm super excited about that I'm working with some colleagues in Florida and Louisiana on is looking at the term essential. And we're really, you know, working on this. This is probably going to become a book project soon, um, just because this has taken such a different, like a deeper turn as we're looking at it. But really looking at who has the power to name who is essential and whether or not people have been able to have any say on their bodies being essential. So really looking at, you know, this historically how the words vital, essential and stuff have been used to suppress black and brown bodies and also prisoners um, in ways that are, are in like that are, that are terrible, really, if yeah. we really look at it. So that's what we're working on right now. This is probably a year to two year project that we're working on, but we're super excited. Every time we talk, it's so energizing because it's like, Oh, I, I was thinking about this. And like looking at even the way that, you know, slavery was um, essentialized and there was vital workers and even looking, you know, after Abraham Lincoln and the Emancipation Proclamation, where, you know, there was still sharecropping and stuff that existed. And a lot of people don't want to talk about that, but it was because of that vital work that needed to be done mm. that really kind of historically has played out in our country. So we're working on that. And, you know, there's lots of other projects that I'm doing and of course still teaching in the middle of a pandemic is an interesting, interesting oh, thing. My. I, I can only begin to imagine what that's like to have to repurpose all of that content, you know, from your classroom to an online. I, I did a lot of my seminary work online and I, I remember even, and that was seven, eight, nine years ago. A lot of it was the, the professors who just tried to take what they did in the classroom and then present it online did not work. It was the ones who actually were, were creative enough to say, how do I repurpose this for a different medium, you know, that, that you really could learn from. So I, I don't envy you that, that task. Cause it's not, I know it's not easy to, to do that, but I know if I, anybody I, can do it, you can. So. Well, it's one of those, I, again, it was quite privileged that during my doctoral work at Texas A&M University, I actually taught online for a little while to where I've also been thinking about this pedagogically for a few years. And even within my department, I had made one of my classes a hybrid class last fall. So way pre-COVID here to where shifting it for me really wasn't that difficult because I'd already started thinking about how to make those shifts, but helping other people in the department get it. Yeah. Um, has been interesting. Yeah, watching watching how people have that have denied the existence of technology for so long suddenly being forced into it. Um, on on one hand, I feel really sorry for them, and then on the other hand, I'm probably sickly entertained by it too. <laughs> I also do have the benefit of I'm a millennial that I'm teaching Z generation now, but I'm a millennial to where computers and technology have pretty much always been a part of my life. Yeah. So it's less of a fear um, there, but you know, it, it's, it's an interesting, interesting yeah. situation. That's honestly, that's one of the things I've appreciated about your work, you know, as I've been able to follow you on, on social media and everything is you are very, you, you're very savvy across different types of media. You know, I've, I've noticed that. And I think that's, I think that's an important skill to have, especially if you are in that place where you're trying to elevate these conversations, right? That you're not, you're not bound into one way of doing it, that you have this literacy across different types of media so that you can do that. Yeah. And it's also fun. I also have lots of really smart friends that are in lots of other places who know how to do this stuff. Like I started this conversation with you about podcasting. I'm like, I don't even know where to start as far as what is involved in it to where it's recognized that there are people who are doing some cool stuff. What can I learn from them and not pretending that I have all the answers? Cause I don't. Yeah. Yeah. Me either. <laughs> I'm still figuring this thing out. <laughs> well, Tamika, thanks so much for being part of the the podcast. Uh, it's always a joy to have a conversation with you. I always feel so stimulated when we get to talk 
together. Um, you, you're always teaching me something new. Uh, so I'm really grateful. And, and thanks again for, for being on the Accidental Tomatoes podcast with us. Thank you for having me. This was fun. Yeah, great. Maybe we'll do it again sometimes. <laughs> And that's a wrap for episode number 21 of the Accidental Tomatoes podcast. I learned so much uh, from talking to Tamika during this episode, and I hope that maybe it will help you gain some new insights and new inspirations for how we all engage together in these very important conversations that are happening in our nation and in our world today. As always, you can find Accidental Tomatoes online at accidentaltomatoes.com. And across the social media world, we are at Accidental Tomatoes. Please be sure to like and follow our Facebook and Twitter and Instagram pages. That's where all of the most up-to-the-minute updates of what's going on in our community uh, will be posted, and, and you can find out everything that's happening there. You can find me, Joe Webb, at my website, joewebwrites.com, where I write a weekly blog about a lot of the same things that we talk about here on the podcast, uh, but maybe with a little bit different perspective or a different angle. And on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, I am at Joe Webb Writes. If you have an idea or a suggestion for a future topic for a podcast or a guest that you would like to hear, I would love to hear from you. You can contact us again on our Facebook or Twitter accounts, or you can email us directly at accidentaltomatoes at gmail.com. And if you enjoy this podcast, uh, I would love to ask you to please be sure to give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Google Play, wherever it is that you listen to your podcast. Ratings and reviews are one of the things that helps other people find us and connect with our community and participate in the conversation that we're having together. And if you'd like to support the work that we're doing at Accidental Tomatoes, you can donate to us through the Patreon platform, where your support helps us to offset some of just the natural expenses of producing content for our community. Just go to patreon.com slash accidental tomatoes to learn more. And until next time, keep on growing outside the fences and join us again for another episode of the Accidental Tomatoes podcast.